So the seventh canto of the Srimad Bhagavatam begins with a question by Maharaj Prikshit, who wants to know, for the sake of everyone, why it seems that the Lord is sometimes partial. Because in previous cantos, we find that it seems that Krishna is siding with the demigods. And in this first section of the seventh canto of Srimad Bhagavatam, Shukadeva Goswami explains the three modes of material nature. And when one develops a certain mode of material nature, that person then becomes connected with success or failure according to the way the modes are moving. For instance, when one's developed the mode of rajas or tamas, then it's very difficult to understand spiritual knowledge. We can hear that from these verses we just read, that until rajas and tamas clears, one can't really clearly understand spiritual life. Tada rajas tamal bhava kamalo then you become situated in a higher mode. So Shukadeva Goswami explains that those in higher modes of nature uh, appear to receive a certain kind of benefit from the Lord, and others in different mixed lower modes get a different kind of benediction from the Lord. Uh, and therefore it appears that the Lord's partial, but he's not. He's actually just giving according to capacity of the person. So if you have a classroom and it's full of 40 students, full with 40 students, and 25% uh, of them are very interested in the subject matter and they're also bright and they do better than the others, it's not the teacher's fault necessarily. Teachers teaching the same thing to everybody, but some of the students are more receptive than others and they have more capacity to understand what he's saying and therefore are able to excel and the other ones don't. So in a similar way, Krishna's acting equally towards others, but some can take advantage of his mercy and other people can't according to the modes they're in. So what's the lesson? Better get out of the modes. Better get out of the lower modes of nature, which is something that Krishna recommends throughout the Bhagavad Gita, that one should be careful to not dabble in the Jaganyaguna Vrittista, Adoka Chanti Tamasad. Mode of ignorance he calls Jaganya. It's horrible. And it drags you down into the lower species of life. And Rajas, he gives enough explanation that one can understand that it's not a desirable mode of nature. It's born of unlimited desires and hankerings, and no one ever fulfills them. Rajas and Kama, ka, are, Rajas is symptomized by Kama and Loba, hankering and desire. And what kind of hankering desire? The kind that's never fulfilled. You're only thinking that you're going to get something, but you never do. But in sattva, one can feel some sense of peace and happiness, and ultimately then one can rise above that and come to Shuddha Sattva. So this is an important 
um, point because there's a way that people sometimes blame God for whatever happens to them. But actually, it's our own positioning in this world that causes whatever happens to us. And Krishna says this later in the Gita, 13th chapter, Purusha prakriti stohi bhunte prakriti jangunam karanam gurusangosya sarasad yoni janmasu. Can we see the devotees that are on the Zoom? Is it possible to actually see their faces? Okay. All right. They'll feel like we have a full temple room. So, we hear also in the seventh canto of the Bhagavatam the story of Hiranyaka. And actually, we've heard the story of Hiranyaka previously. He was one of the sons of Diti. The other one is Hiranyakashipu. And see, that's nice. I can see everybody. Hare Krishna. Look, even Vijay is there. Haribo. So Hiranyaka, or gold eye, uh, translated in English, was killed by the Lord himself, the form of Varahadev. He came as a, as a hog. And with his lotus hoof, he dispatched of Hiranyaka. And afterwards, Diti and all of the family members were distraught because they had lost a family member. So Hiranyakashipu came and spoke to all of them about, he gave some dry knowledge of self-realization. Of course, it's interesting. And here he is, a demon, but he's speaking these words to his family members to appease them during the time when they're feeling despondent after the, the loss of Hiranyaka. So he tells them that, uh, he tells them a story of Suyagya. Suyagya was a king. He won many battles. Then he entered the battlefield and it was his last battle because he was smashed by the enemy. So afterwards, when all the dust settled and he was lying on the battlefield with his limbs broken, it was visible that he had bitten his lip out of a sense of valor as he went down onto the dust. And his uh, queens came there and they were clutching his body, even though he had left. And at this time, Yamaraj decided to come and teach a lesson. So he appeared there on the battlefield. And this is all the story of Hiranyakashipu. Of, he came there in the form of a young boy, about five years old. And he asked the queens, um, what they were doing. And they, they said, the soul has left, our king is gone. And he said, oh, then uh, I see you're crying, so we should cry really loud, then he'll come back. And they said, no, that won't bring him back. And then he said, so why are you crying? <laughs> and he also pointed out to them that if you say the king is gone, I say he's right here. He has the same hands and legs and eyes. And they say, you don't understand. And he said, no, you don't understand. Actually, you never saw your husband. 
the king. You only saw the body because you say he's gone now, but we don't see him now, and you didn't see him then either. So this is an interesting aspect of self-realization. Of course, even after that, the members of the family were still despondent, and then he went on to tell the story of the Kalinga birds and how there had two Kalinga birds fell in love, and they had a family of little baby birds, and then they went out and they were hunting for food, as little birds do, to bring back to the nest. And when they came back, a cruel hunter had captured the nest and all the birds were in the net and they couldn't escape. So the mother bird flew into the net and she got captured also. And when the, the male bird came, he really lamented because he saw everything we've worked for and all my loved ones that are in the net captured by the cruel hunter. Is this story too brutal to listen to? <laughs> the poor Kalinga birds. So as he was standing there watching and lamenting and crying for his lot in life and for the loss of his family, the cruel hunter from behind a tree drew his arrow and also killed the Kalinga bird. The end. <laughs> uh, this story, obviously, was meant to illustrate the way that people lament for the loss of others, but they don't realize that a cruel time is coming for them at the same moment, that they're lamenting for others, trying to save others, and so forth. And he gave the example, Dhirani Kashipu, that we're all travelers in this world. And sometimes travelers, they'll meet in an inn and they'll sit around at a table now six feet apart and they'll have, a, you know, a drink together and they'll talk and they'll make some acquaintance and then they get up and they walk out and they go their separate ways. So he said, our families are, are like that. We all come together and we think that this is the most important unit in the world. We're special. But then everyone leaves and goes different directions. Prabhupada, when he was sitting in Vrindavan, had written in his Vrindavani Bhajan that, I had so many loving relatives, mother, father, grandmother, grandfather, and so forth, but they're all gone. He said, where are they all now? And where are all my uh, loving friends? After one loses all one's money, Prabhupada noted that no one really wants you around anymore. <laughs> And he said, so where are they? Uh, they're all just a list of names. So in this way, Hiranyakashipu was trying to appease his family members and telling them all about the uh, science of self-realization. But interestingly, after he told it, it didn't really work so much even on Hiranyakashipu because he went away very bitter and angry. He walked away thinking, I have to get revenge for the death of my brother. Sometimes people live like this, and they have this spirit that I'm going to avenge some wrong that was done to me. And this is their main motivation in life. And my mother used to tell me, never underestimate the power of all show them. <laughs> so that's what. Hiranyakashipu was thinking, I'll show them. And he put so much into his 
feeling of revenge and wanting to control. And actually, this is what the living entity wants more than anything, is control. This is mentioned in various places in the Shastra. One place I just read it is in the, of all places, the Yoga Sutras, where one of the, one of the um, anartas of a living being in this world is Abhinibeshita, which is translated as, in some places, as a willfulness. Willful, I want things my way. In fact, he mentions that even after one becomes a, a spiritual practitioner, one may still maintain this willfulness. And uh, one has one's own particular way that one wants the world to look, and, and he or she tries to control it in that way. I like it like this, and it has to be that way. This is willfulness. And there's a sense that I have to control the environment. So this is uh, Hiranyakashipu had more than anyone practically ever in history. So much so that he decided that he would perform severe austerities in order to get control. He wanted more control. So he performed this kind of austerity where he stood on one leg and he raised his hands in the air straight up and he stood for thousands and thousands of years doing this incredible tapasya in Satya Yuga. And now he stood for so long that the ants ate his flesh and they built an anthill around him. In Satya Yuga, the, the prana used to circulate in the bones. And in this present age, in Kali Yuga, hey, there's Radhakripa Prabhu. He's on the screen, but he's in the building too, I think. Uh, the prana used to, now circulates in the blood. It used to circulate in the bones. So even as he was standing there uh, in his skeleton, uh, he, was, he was able to maintain his life. He was so austere. And imagine how determined he was to control the world. So the demigods realized that somebody here is performing so much tapasya that they're going to get power over us. And you better stop him from doing these austerities. So Brahma... Uh, being alerted to this and urged by his colleagues in managing the universe, came down to visit Hiranyakashipu, who first was not visible because he was under this anthill. The elements had completely covered him over, but he was still there and the heat was still coming from his body because of the power of the austerities. So then Brahma revived him. In fact, first of all, Hiranyakashipu offered prayers to Brahma as if he was the Supreme Personality of Godhead. This is a kind of audaciousness. He doesn't know who's the Supreme. He doesn't even believe in a Supreme. He wants to be the Supreme, yet he's offering prayers that are self-serving because ultimately he wants something. And these kinds of prayers on a spiritual level, are not so effective. Whereas if somebody is deeply interested in contacting the Supreme Personality of Godhead and offers prayers like Gajendra, then the Lord hears them and becomes responsive. But here Brahma uh, listened to his prayers, and then from his kamandalu, he sprinkled some water. And it revived the body of Hiranyakashipu. He became whole again, 
and not only whole, but also very beautiful. He had a golden complexion. And he also had uh, great power. Now, he had prayed for benedictions from Brahma. And he said, I want to be immortal. But Brahma said, even I'm not immortal. Although it seems like it to most people because he lives for 311 trillion years. <laughs> but he said, I'm not Amara. I ha at, after 311 trillion years, I have to also leave this world. So then Hiranyakashipu, and this is the materialistic mindset that somehow or other by my intelligence, I'll arrange to get what I want here in this world. So that's when Hiranyakashipu said, all right, then let's do this. How about if I don't die in the day or the night? I don't die outside or I don't die inside. I can't be killed by any human, by any animal, uh, by any demigod. Uh, nobody, uh, he thought of everyone who might be able to kill him and he named them all. And he went through this exhaustive list that would cover any circumstance, like an insurance policy. If you've ever taken out insurance, they ask you a lot of questions because they want to come out ahead in the bottom line and they try to match everything up just so they, they can um, give you enough insurance, but they're not going to lose in the end. So it's a kind of positioning that Hiranyakashipu was doing with Brahma. And then Prama spoke a word and said, granted. Then Hiranyakashipu became uh, empowered to now uh, terrorize the universe. So he began by taking away the services of the various kinds of entities within the universe. They all have their particular empowerment, like the Siddhas, they can fly in the air, and the Gandharvas who can sing, and their uh, myriad of planetary systems and, and environments. Yasya Prabha Prabhupato Jagadanda Koti Koti Shvashesha Vasudavi Vibhuti Bhinam Tad Brahma Nishkalamanantam Ashesha Bhutam Govindamadi Purusham Tamahambajami. And all of them, there are various kinds of living beings. So now Hiranyakashipu began to take away their services and have all of them serve him instead. We find all out about this, especially after the incident where he's killed and all of them come and pray to Nishringadev, thanking him for getting their various kinds of mystic powers and services back that they had before that Hiranyakashipu had taken. Not only that, Hiranyakashipu became so powerful within the universe that he deemed that uh, if you perform pious activities, then you'll get a bad result. And if you perform impious activities, you'll get a good result. And he reversed it. And also he told people to stop cultivating crops. And he said, just by the power of my austerity, I'm going to make the crops grow. And no need for normal types of cultivation or rain or anything like that. I'm in control of everything. This is the extent of his control. And that's what he wanted. And that's what he tried for. So now, like any good um, 
materialistic enjoyer. He wanted to surround himself with a kingdom. And then he wanted a succession of, of children, sons particularly, who would follow up in his mode of control of the world. So he had four sons, and the eldest was Prahlad. So Prahlad was special because Prahlad Maharaj, as we call him later, uh, Prahlad Maharaj, Prahlada was born of Kayadu, the wife of Hiranyakashipu. But it was at a time she was pregnant with Prahlad when Hiranyakashipu had gone out to perform some austerities. And then the demigods came and they apprehended Kayadu with the idea that they would hold her hostage until she gave birth. And when she gave birth, they would kill the child because they reasoned that whoever is born of Hiranyakashipu is going to be exponentially worse, perhaps, that we've had enough. No more of these demons. However, when they were taking her away, Narada Muni intercepted them and said, uh, actually, there's a great devotee within the womb of this woman, and therefore, you cannot take her. And the demigods capitulated right away. And Prabhupada explains that. That's because when Narada, who's avowedly truthful and a great soul, he doesn't lie, you can take his word for it. He knows. And therefore, they immediately released her to his care. And Prabhupada said, this is how the parampara works. If you, are, if you hear from somebody who's following the process of Krishna consciousness, then you can take it. And you can understand that you're getting proper knowledge. Otherwise, how would they have known what kind of child was in the womb? So now Narada takes Kayadu to his ashram and takes care of her, knowing that this great soul is within the womb. And he gives all the teachings of Krishna consciousness actually to the child in the womb. The other day I heard that... the. Um, Pregnant mothers here at ISV have a tradition that as soon as they know they're pregnant, then they start reading the Bhagavatam and they read the whole Bhagavatam to the child in the womb. So by the time the child comes out, he's chanting shlokas and, uh, and dancing in kirtan, which we practically see as true. As soon as the child comes out here, you know, they're looking around. By the time they can reach anything, you know, it's kartals and they can already play them and so forth. That's the result of keeping that kind of sound vibration going for the child within the womb. And if a child's listening to television and uh, hearing all kinds of mundane talks in the womb, it's very subtle because we can understand how a child, even in a three-month uh, just post-embryotic stage, becomes aware of his condition, and then begins to lament, how did I get in here again? I'm stuck in this wheel of birth and death. And as his awareness grows, he's thinking, I don't want to come out, because then I'll be captured by Maya again, and so forth. So it's not that the soul within the womb is insensitive or unhearing, 
So imagine what a treat it is for the spiritual soul within the womb to be hearing the, the whole Srimad Bhagavatam during that nine-month period. That must be more than 41 pages a day because it takes a year to finish the whole Bhagavatam if you're reading 41 pages. So these mothers must be reading like 60 pages or something. Mukarvin, how many pages is it to finish in nine months? You can look it up on the app really quick. So when Prahlad came out of the womb, he had already heard from Narada Muni and the vibration that one hears from a great soul is uh, effective. Pravishtakarna Randrena. What's the, what's the answer, Mukharvinda? Vibrations work, they just keep going. What's the story? 55 pages a day. Let's hear it for the pregnant mothers at ISV reading 55 pages of Bhagavatam a day to the child in the womb. Very good, mothers. Very good. So, pravishtakarna ranrena swanam bhavam sarodham. This dhunoti salilam krishna salilasya yatasharat. What a beautiful verse. This verse by Shukadeva Goswami says that when you hear the Srimad Bhagavatam from a great soul, then the relationship you have with Krishna manifests within your heart. And all the dirty things that are harassing you because you've picked them up from here and there after unlimited lifetimes in the material world, they slough off. Just like in the autumn season when the rain comes, it has a special quality in which it clears up all the lakes and streams. So normally when they're muddy, they uh, get muddier when the rain comes. But in, with the autumnal rain, then the streams and the lakes and ponds become clear. So you can see everything on the bottom. Very um, enlivening sight. And so similarly, when a, a great soul speaks the Srimad Bhagavatam, then we become purified. And we can actually understand our relationship with, with Krishna. So this was Prahlad. And Prahlad mentioned, sometimes people say, well, did he become a perfect soul by hearing? Or was he already and then he appeared there in the womb? What an interesting question. Well, I'm going to give you an answer which may not satisfy you, but it's there in Prabhupada's purport where he says he's a mixed half siddha and ha uh, nitya siddha and half sadhana siddha. <laughs> he's an eternally perfect soul, but also by sadhana. So when... Prahlad Maharaj then was growing up. His father was enlivened because he had sent him to the best school to learn this mindset, this worldview, that the world's there for me to dominate. And Shanda and Amarka, who are materialistically oriented, and their father, who's her father? That's right, Shukracharya. Um, they were all set up, you know, to cultivate people in this 
materialistic way of thinking these are my friends and these are my enemies. So Prahlad had already heard the folly of seeing friends and enemies because he's a um, self-realized soul. And in the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna says, Vidya Vinaya Sampane Brahmani Gavihastani Shuni Chaiva Shopake Pandita Samadarshina. That a person who's come to the point of being really learned and self realized sees everyone spiritually uh, and knows that everyone's a part and parcel of Krishna. He doesn't see the outside body. So the idea of domination in the material world because of one type of body or another seems ludicrous to such a person. It's a waste of time. Even Bhumi in the 12th canto of the Srimad Bhagavatam speaks up and she says, I watch these people come into the world and they try to dominate the land that they live in. They fly their flags and they say, we're the kings of this land. And then they fight with each other. It's funny, during the COVID outbreak, there was some uh, war going on where they called a ceasefire because <laughs> let's just let's just have a ceasefire while this uh, this is going on, and then we could take up killing each other later after we're not getting killed by the virus. So this this is demoniac mentality. So Prahlad, when he saw it at school, he thought, "Oh, this is what my guru taught me about." He was such a pure soul that when he noticed that this is actually what they're teaching in an unabashed way, that um, are those are people out there in the parking lot, like in that shed and stuff like that? Man just went in there. Um, then he was, he was quite surprised that um, this was actually going on. So... Um, then, a kind of uh, the moment of truth arrived because Father is so eager to see the son follow in his footsteps, especially the eldest son, and Prahlad was the eldest son. So he called Shanda and Marka and he said, you know, bring my son. I want to see how he's doing in school. Let's see his report card and we'll have a PTA meeting here. And... He came, did Prahlad before his father, and his father was so affectionate toward him, he picked him up and he smelled his head out of affection and he was beaming with pride. Here's my little boy. And he said, Prahlad, just tell me something from school. I want to know, what do you like the most? What's, what's your favorite subject? And what did you learn in school? And Prahlad sings a verse. Tatsarumanye suravarya dehinam sadasan mudvignadiyam asadgrahat hidvatmapatangriyamandakupam vanam gatoyadaram ashriyeta. He says, Oh, Father, best of all the demons. Suryavarya means like, they're demons, but you're the Varya. You're the best of all the demons. <laughs> Said, Tatsarumanye Suravarya Dehinam Asadgrahat. If you're a Satgrahat, you're dedicated to the temporary life, family life, 
and trying to enjoy and control everything in this world, that you should get out of that and you should go to the forest, go to Vrindavan. And uh, there, you can have a look now. Just came out. Um, you can go to Vrindavan. You should go to the forest. Vanam gato yadharamashrita. Vanam means the forest. Gato. You should, you should uh, get away from your entanglement in the material world and and go to the forest. And which forest? Which forest should one go to? What's the best? Vana is the name of forest, right? So which forest should one go to? What's Prahlad saying? Vrindavan. Vrindavan. Vrindavana. So you should go to the Vana of Vrinda. So he's telling his father, you know, hey, give up this nonsense being a king and a controller and a big demon and just go to the forest and become a devotee. You're never going to get anywhere like so that was the best thing he, and his father was shocked. He said to Chanda and Amarka, his teacher, so what are you teaching him? He's like, I didn't send him to school. I'm not paying this much tuition for, <laughs> for this kind of nonsense. He said, uh, what's going on? And both of them said, I, um, we didn't teach him anything like this. We're teaching him all the good stuff about how to be a, a big demon like you. And we can't imagine where it came from. And so he said, well, you go back and try harder and make sure that you do it right the next time. There must be somebody sneaking in or something's happening. So they made a concerted effort to make sure that Prahlad wasn't getting any outside association. And he was a really good student, Prahlad. You know, he listened carefully. He's a devotee. He's very humble and bright. And so they, they thought he's coming right along. So after another period of time, they, they thought, okay, now we can bring him back. So they bring him back to Hiranyakashipu. And uh, this time, you know, he uh, waits to see what Prahlad's going to say. So, okay, now you tell me. Son, what have you learned? What's the best thing? And Pulad says, Shravanam Kirtanam Vishnu, Smaranam Padasevanam, Archanam Bandanam, Dasyam Sakyam Atmadivedanam, Iti Pumsart Pita Vishnu, Bhaktischin Navalakshana, Krieta Bhagavatyada Tanmanye Ditamutamam. He said, if someone's actually intelligent, then they'll take to the process of direct devotional service. And here's what it is. It's hearing about Vishnu, chanting about Vishnu, remembering Vishnu, serving Vishnu's lotus feet. He's going telling the nine process of devotional service. Hiranyakashipu hates Vishnu. The very reason he got all these powers and did all the austerities, it's just so that he could dominate and be against Vishnu. He killed his brother, did Vishnu. So now he becomes furious with Pallad, said, this boy is incorrigible. You try to ki just kill him, get rid of him. And he gave the example of in your body, if you get an infected limb, the doctor just says, look it, if you want to save the body, you got to, got to amputate, take the, take the limb off. That happens sometimes, the limb becomes septic. 
And so they went off and they actually tried to kill Prahlad. And in their attempts, they failed. They tried to give him poison, but Vishnu intervened and he made it like nectar. He drank it, it did no effect. They tried to put him under the feet of elephants, but the elephants wouldn't trample him. He threw him off a cliff, but Krishna caught him at the bottom and he, did, he wasn't vanquished. And through all different ways, Krishna was there to protect Prahlad. And his father became really concerned about this because he saw that Prahlad actually had some supernatural power. And this morning, uh, Bhakta Omkar sent me a verse about how Krishna is like a planet, a graha. These planets are like grahas. Like right now, I had heard from some astrologers that, that um, Shani, Saturn, and Ketu had been connected with one another. That's how they cooked up this whole virus scam that's going on. Now maybe they've broken off and going in different directions, but there's ways in which the influences from various planets and stars, the grahas, the grabbers, um, move the world in a certain way and each individual according to their conditioning under the modes of material nature. But the verse, does anybody have the verse? I put it up on one of the forums today. If you could read that, Manjula Kanta, we'd appreciate it. And so Prahlad Maharaj then speaks about how Krishna, he's a graha. He has his own influence. Okay, go ahead. What is that verse? Dr. Omkar sent this verse that says... Um, what is the verse number? Uh, it hasn't given that. Yeah. It cuts off at the verse. It says, Nyasta Nyasta Kridanako Balo Jadavat Tan Manastaya Krishna Graha Grihitatma Naveda Jagat Idrisham. The translation goes, from the very beginning of his childhood, Prahlad Maharaj was uninterested in childish playthings. Indeed, he gave them up altogether and remained silent and dull, being fully absorbed in Krishna consciousness. Since his mind was always affected by Krishna consciousness, he could not understand how the world goes on being fully absorbed in the activities of sense gratification. And it has the word for word, right? Yes, Maharaj. Would you please read it? Nyasta, having given up. Kridanaka, all sportive activities or tendencies for childhood play. Bala, a boy. Jadavat, as if dull, without activities. Tat Manastaya, by being fully absorbed in Krishna. Krishna Graha, by Krishna, who is like a strong influence, like a Graha or planetary influence. Grihita Atma, whose mind was fully attracted. Na, not. Veda, understood. Jagat, the entire material world. Idrisham, like this. Thank you very much. There's that word, graha. So Krishna becomes the grabber in the life of the devotee. And just yesterday I was listening to Prabhupada explain about how 
we can't remain inactive, that we need variety and we need activity in our life. And we either put ourselves under the control of the material nature, or we can put ourselves under Krishna's control. So pure devotional service, Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita, Mahatmanastumam parta daivim prakritim ashrita bhajantyananya manaso gyatva bhutatim avyayam. That the Mahatmas, Prabhupada said, it doesn't, Mahatma doesn't mean that somebody has a, a long beard or crazy hair. That's not the sign of a Mahatma. Um, of course, it doesn't mean that they have nice hair either or no hair. But a Mahatma is one who is ashrita, under the controls, taking shelter under the divine nature. Daivim prakritim ashritas. So there's, a, there's an external prakrita and there's an internal prakrita. So if we take shelter of the external prakrita, then we're at the mercy of maya. And if we take shelter of Krishna's internal potency, then we're in our natural condition because we're under Krishna's spiritual shelter. So now Hiranyakashipu became really afraid of Prahlad because he saw he had this special power. And in one more meeting, when Prahlad spoke to his father, he told him, uh, And he also mentioned to him that uh, the only way that one can be happy in life and attain perfection is by associating with Vaishnavas. So these kinds of responses by Prahlad were just so abhorrent to, they were anathema to Hiranyakashipu, whose whole being was about being against Vishnu. So then he finally decided that he would kill Prahlad himself instead of having agents do it. So to kill your own son, especially a young son, is an abominable idea. So he drew his sword, and he challenged Prahlad and asked him where he was getting his power from. And Prahlad said, I'm getting it from the same place you are, which is kind of an interesting point. Most people don't think of that. They think of the Satan and God being at odds with one another. And they are to some degree, but the fact is they all come from the same source. And it's our interaction with the world that creates good and bad circumstances for ourselves. As I quoted earlier, Sada said, Yoni Janmasu. So Prahlad gave that answer and Hiranyakashipu wanted to know where this all-pervading Vishnu was. I mean, that's redundant because Vishnu means all-pervading. <laughs> it means he's entered everywhere. So then he demanded to know where he was and said, is he in the pillar? And Prahlad says, yes, of course, he's, in, he's everywhere. So just to prove the words of his devotee to be accurate, at that time when Hiranyakashipu drew his sword and went to smash the pillar, there was a sound that came out from, from Lord Nishingadev that curled Hiranyakashipu's blood. And you could hear the sound, this roaring sound all over the universe. This just before the appearance of God when he's angry. 
So you can imagine what that would sound like. And so he burst out of the pillar and then began a fight with Hiranyakashipu. And in the fight, they were dueling with one another. Of course, Nishingadev has his natural weapons with his sharp nails. Vajradamstra, it's a bit like thunderbolts they are. But it's Hiranyakashipu, he represents this idea that one can become strong by austerity in the material world and by material development and so forth. That's what Hiranya and Kashipu means. Hiranya means gold, Kashipu means soft bed. Grant me this boon that I'll never drop dead. Never drop dead, that's what I said. That was from a Guruku play back in the old days. And so the fight went on and at, at a certain point, Lord Nishingadev dropped Hiranyakashipu and all the demigods who had been watching the fight then were horrified because they thought, well, maybe this creature isn't going to be able to defeat this demon. And they also thought that he's seen us now, that is Hiranyakashipu has seen us rooting for the enemy. Now he's gonna, the tyranny is going to become even worse. So they were very wrapped up in the fight. And now uh, Nishringadev grabs him again and then puts him on his lap and uh, bifurcates him, actually uh, eviscerates him. He tears open his chest and pulls out his heart and his intestines and he wraps them around his neck like a garland. And Prabhupada said then, Prahlad Maharaj is standing there and he's saying, very good boy. <laughs> he said, what kind of child when he sees his father being murdered is going to say that? So this is uh, because Lord Nishingadev is completely transcendental and the relationship with Prahlad is transcendental. And how transcendental is it? That just after killing this demon, Lord Nishingadev went and sat on his throne now, the Acharyas ask, how could that be? Demon is considered to be a contaminating person, and he sat on that throne. It's a horrible place. So why would the Supreme Personality of Godhead then want to go sit there? And Vishwanath Chakravarti Thakur says, because actually, Jai and Vijay had come as these various demons. First, there was... Um, Hiranyaka and Hiranyakashipu, and then there was Kumbhakarna and Ravana, and then finally there's Shishupal and Dantavakra. So these are actually devotees appearing in these roles so that Krishna can have Vira Rasa, which means he likes to fight, and it's kind of a play. Uh, it's a, it is a play, it's a, it's a Leela. So this is one of the places in this drama that the uh, origins of Jai and Vijay come out because as he sits on the throne then uh, he's appreciating that my devotee sat here. And who was the devotee? Hiranyakashipu because he was Jai Vijay. He was one of the uh, of Jai and Vijay who had taken birth as Hiranyakashipu. What's more, when he was tearing open his heart, Lord Nishingadev was with his lotus-like hands, holding the heart in his hands and thinking, 
how did you allow these anartas to come into your heart? He was appreciating his devotee. So we find intertwined with the external manifestation of this drama between Prahlad and Hiranyakashipu. Apparently, the Hiranyakashipu is a demon, but actually his real identity is as a devotee that comes out at that point. So now, Prahlad Maharaj has seen the death of his father. The demons see that the universe is saved, and they all come forward to offer their prayers. And there's a long string of prayers, as I just mentioned a moment ago, each of them appreciating the appearance of the Lord. But the Sringadev is not appeased at all by these prayers. And therefore, and even Lakshmiji notices that this is, she's afraid to approach him at this point. If this is my husband, I don't really recognize him. He's so angry. So they finally push Prahlad Maharaj forward, Prahlad, the child, and say, you try, you offer prayers. And then Prahlad begins to offer his prayers, beginning by saying very humbly that, and, and it's said that, Gadgaraya, with a choked up voice, his, so much devotion he has. He's offering with great devotion and he, he then begins to say that, uh, what can I say? These uh, great souls who are in the mode of goodness have offered you all kinds of prayers. Well, I'm just a little child. And not only that, I come from a family of demons. So what can I say? And then he thinks of Gajendra. And he says, if Gajendra, who's an animal, but he was sincere, because he had a little bhakti, tutosha, he was able to satisfy you. So therefore, I'm going to try. I'm going to try because just sincerely from my heart, I'm going to try to offer prayers. So he, Prahlad Maharaj said that this is the secret. If you're sincere and you just try and you offer prayers. And then he says, remember that whatever you're offering to the Lord isn't for the Lord's benefit. It's for your benefit because he's already purnam. He's complete. He doesn't need anything from, from us. But if you give it, then you become edified by that offering to the Lord. And he gives such philosophical prayers all the way through the ninth chapter of the, of the seventh canto. And finally, um, Lord Nishingadev, pleased with Prahlad, tells him, please take some benediction. Because I'm Bhagavan, I give benedictions. And Prahlad says something that's uh, indicative of his position and why he's worshipped by everyone. And that is that I don't want anything. And he really meant it. I don't want anything. I didn't worship you because I want something in return. I'm not a vanic. I'm not a merchant. I didn't... Uh, worship you because I need something or want something. I just am your eternal servant. You're my eternal master. And that's just the way it is. And we'll just leave it like that. <laughs> but the Shringadev said, no, I'm Bhagavan. I give benedictions. You take something. He, he pushed it upon Prahlad, who finally said, then please give the benediction to my father. 
This is the father who abused him, tried to kill him. So Prahlad's heart was so soft, he wanted to save his father. So then Lord Nishringadev said, I already saved your father. Not only that, I saved 20 generations before and after. Because of you being a pure devotee in the family, I'm going to give benedictions to everybody, forward and backwards. So don't ask for something else. So then Prahlad says, if you offer me any benediction, this is what I want. That within the core of my heart, there be no material desire, only desire to serve you. So this is the basis for one entering into Krishna consciousness in a productive way. Lord Chaitanya Mahaprabhu gave this mood that I don't want anything. I'm just service for service. And if anyone serves in that way, follows in the footsteps of Prahlad Maharaj, you, we notice them. You notice it, don't you? If somebody's doing service and they, you can tell they don't care, they're not doing it to put themselves forward, uh, to make a big show or even a little show. They just are doing service for service then they become effulgent. And not only that, it attracts Krishna's attention. And that's the only thing that attracts Krishna's attention is that sincere uh, service attitude. And that's where devotional service begins, with the mood of Prahlad Maharaj. So we worship Prahlad Maharaj even more than we worship Nishringadev. In fact, you'll notice throughout the whole seventh canto, there's very little about Nishringadev. There's a few verses. He appears at the end, <laughs> he gives a benediction, and <laughs> that's it. But most of it's about Prahlad, and most of it's about Narada, and it's about Prahlad's mood uh, and how he lived his life. And it's something we can all relate to because material life, especially for devotees, is a conundrum. I mean, how do you actually get along in the world without getting contaminated? by bad association? What if you have a father who's a, a, a real demon? What if you have um, all kinds of obstacles in your life? What do you do? I mean, it doesn't get much worse than a father who tries to kill you just because you want to chant Hare Krishna. But Prahlad showed, here's, here's how you do it. So his mode of devotional service is extremely important. And it, this pastime also answers the question that was asked by Parikshit Maharaj about the Lord's neutrality, which he mentions early on in interesting ways. This is the last thing I'll say, and we'll take some reflections and questions. And that is, he wanted to know the, the ways that some people were being liberated and some people not. And so it's mentioned at the early part of the seventh canto that Shishupal, it's a, it's, a curiosity. How is it that Shishupal, who from his very birth was inimical towards Krishna, attained liberation? And everyone saw it at the Rajasui sacrifice. He entered into the body of the Lord and attained liberation. But he was really against Krishna. In fact, uh, he knew throughout his whole life that Krishna was going to kill him because there's something there in the Puranas that explains he was born with four arms and that it's said that. Uh, he would be touched by someone who would later be his killer. 
uh, and when he was touched by that person, two arms would disappear, and he would have only two. And so Krishna, being a family member, came to see Shushupal when he was very young, and as soon as he touched him, two arms disappeared. So he knew throughout his life that Krishna was going to kill him, and he hated him, and he did everything he could to uh, discredit him and blaspheme him. So why is it that he attained success? And Narada Muni gives the answer that through intensely thinking of the Lord, whether you're doing it favorably or unfavorably, uh, you get purified. And uh, he says something interesting, and that is Narda, that he feels, he says out of this sense of ecstasy, that the, the demons are better at this than the, than the devotees. Vishwanath Chakravarti Thakur clarifies that the, the devotees who are in Vaidhi Bhakti compared to the demons, the demons are more intensely thinking of Krishna because out of hatred they think of him. So they can think of him more, more uh, intensely than anybody. And then, of course, one last point, and that is that the demon king, Vena, uh, didn't attain liberation. Uh, even though he hated God, but he completely ignored him. Shishupal thought of Krishna constantly out of hatred. That's why he attained perfection. And at the very last second, before the Shudashan Chakra chopped off his head, he thought, oh, he's actually really beautiful. That's why he attained liberation. But Veda uh, completely denied the existence of God. In fact, he told everybody, stop doing all these yagas, just offer everything to me. I'm the king, I am God. You don't need to think of God or nobody needs to think of God because I'm him. And he was killed by the sages, but he didn't attain liberation because he didn't think of Krishna. So two points. One is that if you're going to be a demon, then you should hate Krishna and not ignore him. And the other one is that you shouldn't be a demon. In fact, it's mentioned there in that section that don't try this at home. In other words, don't think that because the demons think of Krishna so intensely in a non-favorable way that I'll also be non-favorable towards Krishna, and therefore I'll think of him in that way. That's not the idea. The idea is anukulyena krishnanushilanam. You should cultivate, shil, devotional service that's favorable towards Krishna, and then imagine what kind of a fruit there will be. Everyone still okay? All right. Now we'll take reflections or questions, because we got all night here. They let us back in, and so now we're not leaving. All right, go ahead. See how this works, Robin. Hare Krishna, Guru Maharaj. Oh, Hare Krishna. Nandar Pranam, Jashla Prabhupada. Happy Nashinga Chaturdasi. This is Sudhir Madhavadas. I know, and you're in Mayapur, right? We're holding Naveena hostage here from Mayapur. <laughs> okay, Prabhu, good to hear your voice. Please tell us about your Krishna conscious reflection. Um, there were a few of them, but I'll share one. Uh, you mentioned in the beginning, um, explained so wonderfully that Krishna is not partial. And you gave the example of uh, a student in a class one who's not paying attention and failing 
and the one there were a few things I share one. Uh, you mentioned in the beginning, uh, explained so wonderfully that Krishna is not partial. And you gave the example of uh... sorry, there was an echo. Are you am I still connected? You are. We can hear you now. There was a, a slight jumble of sounds there for a minute, but I think that our crew has it under control based on their countenances. They look quite victorious over there. Go right ahead. Okay, just I want to request that uh, those who are not speaking, please mute your microphones yourself. And only those who need to speak, please unmute your own microphone. In that way, everyone can hear the voice of the speaker very clearly. Thank you very much. So the teacher is giving the same teachings to the students. So it's, the, it's also up to the student. And in the previous classes, you had also shared uh, that uh, Krishna reciprocates accordingly. So if a student is more uh, adhering to the instructions of the teacher and is asking, is inquiring submissively and the teacher is reciprocating accordingly. So that's not partiality. Thank you so much. For for elaborating that point. Yeah, it makes one um, think about how to prepare oneself to accept Krishna's mercy. Really devotional services, how to make oneself receptive. And his mercy's there all the time. I had this experience once when I was visiting that place in, I think it's Scotland. What is the name of that place? Bhavan? No, the... Karuna Bhavan. I'd never been there before. I had two shocks when I got there. Well, one was a shock and the other was a realization. The shock was the, the Gordi Thai deities that I grew up with in Krishna consciousness, at least the first year when I joined the temple in San Francisco, I always wondered where they were. And they're in Karuna Bhavan, <laughs> the same deities. I recognized them right away and I couldn't believe they had gone all the way to Scotland. That was the first thing. I didn't know they were there. And the second one, I saw all these beautiful pictures of Krishna on the wall. And that night I was thinking that actually Krishna is always manifest. It's just I can't see him because I'm not qualified. In other words, his personal form is always there. It's not that um, it's hard to see. Uh, Brahma says, Premanjana Trudita Pakti Vilochanena, Santaksa Daiva Hradeshu Vilokayanti, Yam Shamasundanam Achinta Gunasarupam Govinda Mari Purushamta Maham Bajami. If you're in the right frame of mind, which is that you have Prema, and your eyes, he says poetically, are tinged with that salve of love, then you see Govinda everywhere. Because Krishna is everywhere. He's within every atom, he's within our hearts. So why do I miss him? I'm I'm wrong-headed myself. That's why I miss him. So your point is really important, Sudhir Madhava, and, and that's that we have to uh, prepare ourselves in order to be receptive for Krishna. You have something? There's some questions. All right, reflection. Okay, questions. let's hear it. Okay, so Shraddha Madhavi says, um, I have a question. Lord Nishima, looking, Lord Nishima, they're looking outside inside Hiranyakashipu's heart and saying, from where did these impurities come? From where do negative thoughts about someone sometimes come into our minds 
out of the blue, even though we may never usually have negative thoughts about that person and also not want to have such thoughts. The intelligent, intelligence may reason and push the thought away, but they seem to come back with a vengeance. How to handle? Thanks, Shredded. Oh, yeah, good question. Very practical. Thank you, Shredder. So which Shredder was it, by the way? Okay. <laughs> so, um, okay, well, there's Shraddha and Bhaktin Shraddha. That'll work. So, um, if I may go, since I've been on a roll here with the Yoga Sutras lately in Patanjali, just such a good answer that comes from the Yoga Sutras at this point, and I'll cor corroborate it with the Bhagavad Gita. But actually, it's in a commentary in, in the Yoga Sutra, Vyasadeva says, that the mind really, you have to understand what the mind is. It's, it's a huge pile of samskars. Samskar means impressions. So we have unlimited impressions there within the, within the surface of the mind, not just the surface. It's in, these are all embedded. Unlimited impressions are samskars that have been imprinted there because of our connection with the three modes of material nature since a time immemorial. So that's one, the reason that, they, that he says later on in the sutras that it's not if these are, uh, kind of anartas are going to come out, it's when, because they're there hiding. Um, now, uh, what's the mitigation process? Well, of course, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu says, Chaito Darpana Marjanam, that there's a way in which by chanting Hare Krishna, you cleanse those kinds of impressions from the mind and the heart. It's called the chitta, which is a combination of the, the intelligence and the mind and the ego, the subtle, subtle body. It becomes cleansed by chanting Hare Krishna. And uh, again, comparing and contrasting with the Yoga Sutras, I just read this yesterday. There are these overriding samskars that um, they overwrite the bad samskars. When you put in a devotional samskar, it starts to uh, reverse the other bad samskars that you've taken in. And so you can, you can overwrite one with the other. So I don't think you should feel bad. In fact, the Shastra says, don't worry about it, especially in Kali Yuga. It's a really disturbed age. You're not responsible for what you think. In other ages, you think something and you get the karma for it, but not in this age. That's specifically mentioned in the first canto of the Bhagavatam. Second is it's inevitable these things will come up, so don't beat yourself up. Just uh, objectify your mind and realize that it's not you. And third thing is keep putting in the positive samskars and be very, very, very patient for a time to come when you'll the, the, the fruit will, of the, those things will overwhelm the negative sum scars. Is that all right? Hare Krishna. That's good. I can see everybody, so you can just go like this. All right. Um, what should we do now? One from there or one, from, one more from Facebook? Is there another comment that you want to give live and they'll test our audio system to see if we get an infinite echo loop? Hare Krishna Guru Maharaj. Hey, Devavrata Prabhu. Hare Krishna. I I just wanted to say that I really love this pastime because it's it's very relatable. I was reading with Brigupati today a particular purport 
and it was talking about how although Talad Maharaj was born in a demoniac family, because he engaged in the process of devotional service, his, he was free from that bodily contamination. And Prabhupada is just making the point that anyone, if they engage in this process, they can become free from they can they can become free from those anarthas regardless of the background that they're coming from. So I'm just uh, really appreciating how much hope this particular pastime gives us. Yeah, unlimited hope. And Prahlad in his prayers goes on to say similar things that it doesn't matter where you're born. Like Viprad, Vitad, Vitad, Anandava, Padara, Vinda, Mukachwa, Pachamba, Rishna, Manyetar, Arpita, Manova, Chenehi, Tarta, Pranam, Bunati, Sakulamna, Tuburimana. Viprad Vishad Guna. There it is. Viprad Vishad Guna Yatada Vindanaba Padara Vinda Vimukachva Pachamba Rishnam Manyetat Arpita Manova Chanehi Tarta Pranam Punati Sukulamna Tuburimanaha. He says that uh, even if you're born in a really bad family, how bad? How bad is it? How bad does it get? Shwapacha means that you're dog cookers. You know, you come home, mom, what's for dinner? Like, dog again? <laughs> I mean, it's horrible. Uh, it's really horrible. And he said, you know, if you come from a, a family of dog cookers, if you become a sincere devotee, then you can overcome that prarabdha. Uh, and he said, on the other hand, if you're from a high Brahmin family, and you don't have that sincere desire to serve the Lord. In fact, you think that you're all important and you, you don't give importance to God. So you can't purify yourself and you can't purify anybody, anybody else. Whereas a person who's sincere can and purify his whole family. So yes, it, everything's overcomable by the, which is a weird word. Um, everything can be overcome by the process of sincere devotional service. Okay, one more from Facebook. I think we have 10 more minutes before we have the Abhishekam. Um, there's reflections on Facebook. Reflection, Would yes. Like Pray tell. Um, so, Chaitan Kumar Prabhu says, Hare Krishna Guru Maharaj Ji, Dandavat Pranam, please accept my humble obeisances. Now, after Nishima Chaturdishi, COVID will start to subside. Lord Nishima has come to save his devotees along with his devotees. Other jivas also get saved as devotees are full of compassion and mercy. Well, it's music to my ears. I'm glad to hear, <laughs> glad to hear that prediction. Hadi bow. Okay, good. Okay. Guru Maharaj, I have a question. Okay, go ahead. So um, you talked about affection when you were talking about uh, Narasimha, uh, about uh, Prahlad and his father. And the statement came that he, he um, took him on his lap with great affection and smelt his hair. And, and then I was thinking about the word affection and the fact that it's, it's, a, it's a feeling or an emotion. And do we apply that to the Lord if, if affection is so, so um, temporary that we lose it? Like Hiranyakashipu does? So can we... Can we use it for the Lord or is, is the Lord looking for something more than affection? Something like, like you keep saying, right? Lolyam is what the Lord looks for, that deep attraction and affection. Well, one thing to understand is that affection is natural. We have a natural affection in our heart because 
Nitya Siddha Krishna Prema Sadhya Kabunoi. It's the nature of the, of the soul to have this kind of affection or prema. And Prabhupada would point out how it's there within every species, like animals. You, you notice they have natural affection for their offspring, right? And vice versa, till they're, till they're 16 or 17. And then, you know, it's like there's a difference. But there's, um, no, it's, it's always there. But when, when I project that affection into the um, illusory world, then it's misplaced. And it doesn't have the kind of effect that I would hope for. But when I give that affection to the Lord, even if I don't know exactly who the Lord is at that time, um, of course, you know, people argue about that, you know, how much. But Agatha Sukriti is there. And if you, you know, if, if somebody looks at, for instance, Lord Jagannath coming down the street, and they just think, well, what a marvelous festival. And who is that smiling, you know, um, person up there or deity or whatever they think. And they just have some appreciation. Even from that level, they get great benefit because their affection is rightly placed. So affection is a real thing. It's just a matter of uh, putting it in the right place. You got to put it in the right bank account. That was really nice, Maharaj. Projected oh, on the right screen. Yeah, it's practical. It's, it's a practical philosophy because we don't try to deny affection, which would be a big mistake because people know that they can't do without it. In fact, what I, one of the, I heard Hrinandamar speaking about religious history and he was saying how certain kinds of uh, religious movements have amended their uh, teachings to some degree at some points in history, for instance, because they were losing <laughs> in the marketplace. For instance, he mentioned a certain strain of Buddhism where they just say, you're nothing. An anatma, there's no soul. And so let's just say your mother dies. And then you say, you know, to console the person, it's like, all right, she never existed anyway, so it's no big deal. You know, that doesn't really sit well. Uh, whereas, you know, you find some other philosophy, oh, she's gone, and actually you can offer a feast, uh, and her soul's going to get benefit. She's somewhere else right now. <laughs> and, and also, you know, you understand there was a person there. That's who I had affection for. But the body I took to be the self, just like Hirani Kashipu was telling his family members, right, misplaced affection. That makes a lot more sense viscerally. Because we know that we love, we know we have affection, and if you just try to deny it, it doesn't work. Because even denial is an act of consciousness, it's a positive thing. Uh, you can't get away from your personhood, that's a big mistake. So yes, affection is part of being a person. And Queen Kunti talks about this, uh, she says, you know, help me cut out that part of the the, of the affection that I just have for my earthly family. I mean, if she can even claim she has a, like a worldly family. And let it be, you know, into my spiritual family and for you, Krishna. So there's that fine-tuning of affection that's there in bhakti. That's what it means, really. That's why bhakti is so practical, because it actually is what we're used to. We're used to, you know, getting together appreciating people, singing with them, having food. <laughs> you know, you want to have people over and have food. That's why everyone's all 
upset right now. It's like, I can't be with people. We're not, you know, it's like if you say go to a cave and just sit there by yourself, it's not going to work for anybody, except for maybe a really advanced budget in Andy who doesn't want to see anybody else. That's rare in history. But people want to be together. They want to eat together. They want to sing together. They want to dance together. That's bhakti. It's just you have to apply your affection and, and you know, your understanding of who you're associating with correctly. So anybody can do bhakti. It's what we're already doing. Just adjust your understanding of where the affection goes. You got a reflection there? Questions on Facebook, would you? Is like that right? Yeah. Would you Let's like take one. Okay. And we'll save those questions for later too. We're saving them up and we'll have a question-thon. Question-thon. Okay. Raseshri Leela Mataji says, um, are there any reasons for Jai and Vijay to prefer being born as demons instead of devotees? From perspective of absolute time, it appears seven births as devotees versus three births as enemies of the Lord would not be very different. Yeah, but if you take it that one second is like eight years or more, yugayatam nimishena chakshusha pravishayatam shunyayatam jagatsarvam govinda virahena made. Lord Chaitanya didn't think so. <laughs> it's like four more births uh, to be separated from the Lord somehow or other. I mean, that was, that was the idea. Plus, there's a kind of cooperation with the Lord because... You know, he was expressing his uh, desire, really. He didn't say it overtly, but the whole thrust of this pastime is that he wants to fight somebody. You know, it's like uh, WWF. It's a, everyone knows it's a fake fight, but they still go there and get into it. I mean, you know, the, to, he, wants, he wants that valor, the viraras. So that was part of that cooperation with that. Another one? Devaratha Prabhu says, is becoming aware of Anartha's evidence they are being removed? It's part of it. Yeah, because uh, as it's said in the Bhagavatam, three kinds of people. Two are happy and the others are suffering. So the two that are happy are the complete fool who's in complete ignorance and doesn't know anything. And the other one is the Paramahamsa who's already gone through Anartha and everything else and everybody else in between suffers. <laughs> So yes, being aware of an anartha is the first way in which one is able to uproot the anartha. Because if you don't acknowledge it, that's a problem. If you don't know it's there, that's a problem. But if you know it's there, it's still a problem, but at least now you can face it and deal with it. So that's progressive. That's it? No, there's no way. Oh, let's see. Who is that? I can't see from here. Venka Prabhu, go ahead. Did you have something this, to say? Yes, Prabhu, I have a question. Uh, yes? I, uh, you have uh, told an interesting uh, aspect of Buddhism. So I, I was just thinking, what is the reason that Buddha is considered as one amongst Dashavatars rather than Balarama? Well, it's because uh, Buddha is uh, actually a Shaktivesha incarnation of Krishna who came for a specific purpose and that was to help to take people away from animal slaughter. And it's a, 
circuitous route that Krishna takes oftentimes as a part of a huge project that he has to bring people closer to him. And so that's uh, the uh, reason that the Buddha is there. And in the list of all the different incarnations of the Lord, you'll find that uh, the only one that isn't listed there is the avatari, who's Krishna. And that's why the Bhagavatam says, Eti chamsha kala pumsa krishna stu bhagavan swayam indrari vyakulam lokam mridayanti yuge yuge. That uh, all these other uh, aforementioned uh, manifestations of the Lord are the um, emanations from the one source, that is Krishna, the Supreme Personality of Godhead. And that includes Balaram, because he's the first uh, manifestation or the first expansion of Krishna. Hey,